I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we explore those principles and cultivate those virtues that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. This is our post-election episode. I am very excited to welcome back to the program, Professor John Schaff, Professor of Political Science at Northern State University in Aberdeen, South Dakota. Welcome back, Professor. Thanks for having me, Chris. Always a joy to be here. Well, last time I made the, made the stumble of saying that uh, welcome back as an honored guest, and you pointed out very quickly that I have not yet given you a trophy or a plaque or not even a T-shirt. So I'm, I'm working get to on, work a, on that. Yeah, I, 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 I am. I, I, I was shopping on, you know, I had a couple things in my Amazon cart, but I haven't pulled the trigger yet. Um, but we will get that reward right, for I'm, you. I'm very excited. Yeah, it's it's always well, great well, to have Christmas you on the show. Is, Christmas is coming soon. <laughs> yeah, well, all I want for Christmas is some election results. Actually. All right. Well, it might take that long. <laughs> I don't know. I was joking with Dr. Bergwald, who is probably I know you you know Dr. Bergwald is familiar I with sure many of our yep. listeners. Uh, joking with him on on his podcast the other day that um, that maybe our election cycle is taking a, a page out of the Catholic book with the octave of election day. We're now yeah. on day four of the octave yep. of, of the, the feast of the national election. Um, what should we, uh, what, what are some of our big, big takeaways at this point uh, without, as we're recording, not yet having uh, a president, but maybe it looks like it's starting to, to tip towards uh, candidate Biden. Well, let's talk about a couple of things there, Chris. One, as as you mentioned, uh, you know, we're recording this on Friday. What's the date today, Chris? The sixth. Yeah, Friday, Friday the sixth, and we still don't have a declared winner, um, but we're we're getting awfully close, and everything is trending Biden, and so it'd be a, a very big surprise if the next president wasn't wasn't Joe Biden. Well, at the same time, it looks. More likely than not uh, that there'll be a Republican Senate. We have a couple runoff elections in Georgia that will determine that. Republicans will have a minimum of 50 seats. But if Joe Biden's president, uh, Kamala Harris would be vice president. And in a 50-50 Senate, uh, the vice president, so to speak, breaks the tie as president of the Senate. That's the vice president's other constitutional job is your president of the Senate. We've had that in the recent past where the vice president has swung a 50-50 Senate, but assuming one of those two Georgia Republicans, and it's likely both of them will win, but you'd think one of them will win, that uh, Republicans will have a, a narrow control of the Senate, but they'll control. And the Republicans picked up, it looks like, a few seats in the House, not nearly enough to take control. I, I think what we see out of this, Chris, uh, is uh, let's just talk politics. I mean, we can talk policy with uh, a presumptive President Biden. Um, politically, I think what we've seen is, you know, look at this election, Chris. I mean, we can even go back to 2016. This election is so stinking close. Um, and, you know, Joe Biden is going to win with about 51% of the popular vote. The electoral vote, he's going to be, you know, he's winning states like Georgia, it looks like, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, uh, Nevada, um, even Pennsylvania by 1%, 2%, in some cases less than that, less than 1%. Uh, of the vote. The, the House is going to be relatively close. Democrats will control, but relatively close. Senate very close. And it, it just goes to show that we live in a very, a very um, 
uh, unsettled state. We don't, there's no, uh, there's no uh, partisan dominance in our national politics. Which is why we tend to have these swings back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And interesting demographic shifts where we see Donald Trump won the highest share of the minority vote for any Republican president since 1960 when Richard Nixon lost um, to John Kennedy. Uh, at least that's the outcome, leaving aside the corruption of the 1960 election. Uh, but, but so that's 50 years ago. What am I saying? 60 years ago yeah. since a Republican has gotten that much the minority vote. And so we might be seeing some electoral shifts going on. Uh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, what do you make of that 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 sort of shift in the electorate? Um, you know, looking at it starkly along yeah. racial lines. Yeah, I think there was one uh, one well known uh, statistic from this from this Tuesday. Um, one of the counties in Texas, overwhelmingly Hispanic, voted like in the ninety percentile or something like that for candidate Clinton four years ago, and then yep. swung to Trump, you know, that's a huge, huge, massive swing yeah, well, you're, in four years. What, what do we well, make of this? What you're talking about, there's, uh, I guess we all, we all become experts on things when we get in the, like, we're all, we're all uh, epidemiologists now with COVID. And yeah. now, we're, now we're all demographic. There's this, apparently there's this county right on the Mexican border. It's in Texas. Yeah. And it's like 98% Hispanic. It's the most Hispanic county in the country yeah last time hillary clinton won that vote by 60 percent six zero and this time joe biden is going to win by about five percent okay it's a 55 percent swing towards trump and we saw especially in in florida a big swing of hispanics and i think a couple things are happening here chris one is is that um whatever his personality quirks are i think donald trump has tapped into something that the future of the Republican Party is probably a more multi-ethnic working class party than it has traditionally been over, well, our lifetimes when, it, when it's been a white business class party. Uh, if the country club kind of party. The country club Republican of which like Mitt Romney is like par yeah. excellence, this, uh, this uh, hedge fund uh, operator, uh, you know, multimillionaire kind of a guy and, and really was the candidate of business. Uh, and maybe that Republican Party is going by the wayside in a different Republican Party. There was someone tweeted out on election night, uh, something like this, that the Republican Party is going to become a more working class, multi-ethnic party. And Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri simply responded by, yeah, duh. Like, yeah. of course, this is where the party's going. And we've seen that with, with Senator Hawley and Senator Rubio, I yeah. think, have taken taken the front on that. And, and part of that is, you know, Donald Trump is going to win the Catholic vote huge, like two to one Catholic vote. We haven't we haven't seen that for Republican candidate. I don't know when. Um, and and so that's un, that's unusual. Uh, and so especially so, so much of the Catholic vote in America is ethnic. And obviously a lot of that is Hispanic. And you wonder if there's an opportunity there while the Democratic Party is becoming. You now, the oddity is that what really is going to put Joe Biden over the top, we're talking about all these uh, all these uh, demographic groups that switch to Trump. Not that they, like Hispanics did not vote majority for Trump. They voted for Biden, but just not as much as they did for Clinton four years ago. Trump increased his numbers amongst Hispanics, amongst blacks, amongst women. Oddly, the group that's going to put Joe Biden over the top is 
middle class to wealthy suburbanite white males, uh, mm. college college educated, and that kind of elite professional managerial college educated class is becoming more and more democratic. With, you know, which obviously used to be Republican, and now the, uh, the we're seeing at least some instances or some indication that the Republican Party has some some attraction to more ethnic and working class um, uh, voters. And so, uh, th- and that's just something that each party is going to have to pay attention to and how, how, how they respond to that is going to be interesting. I think we're going to have in the next four years, assuming Mr. Trump is out, um, we're going to have an interesting internal fight in the Republican party of what's, what is the future of the Republican party? And that'll be interesting to see that play out. Well, and, and maybe that's a, a good pivot to just looking forward towards the next four years. Yeah. Let's just, I, I know some things are yet up in the air with the Georgia runoffs and we've, yep. we, we're not quite sure about the presidential race yet. But as we stand right now, let's just say for the sake of discussion that we end up with uh, President Biden, a Republican Senate and a, and a Democratic House. Yeah. What does that mean for the next four years? What does governance look like at the well, federal level? You know, of course, it, it all depends on how people react to an election. Um, you now, I just got done saying, you look at the numbers, both uh, within government and then in the electorate. It's a very evenly divided country. The problem we've had over time is we've had, you know, you know Barack Obama's victory in 2012 was relatively narrow, not in 2008, but in 2012, it was narrow. George Bush in 2004 was narrow. Uh, obviously, Donald Trump won in 2016 with a minority of the vote. Now, we've, this is, and we've seen House and Senate flip-flopping over the last 20 years. It's a very narrow uh, electorate. Yet when people get into power, they seem to want to take the most expansive view of their mandate. There is a phone call amongst Democrats that got leaked yesterday. Uh, House Democrats had a phone call and some Democrats were saying, hey, we got to moderate. You know, we really we thought we were going to kill those Republicans this year and we're going to actually lose seats. We got to moderate. And Nancy Pelosi, who will be Speaker of the House next year still, said no. We won the election. We're going to win the presidency. We control the House. We have a mandate to govern, and we're going to govern as Democrats. And that's overreading your mandate. And both parties have done that. You know, when yeah. Donald Trump wins with a minority vote and claims he has a mandate for governing, well, that, that's not really true. And so what we have to wonder is, will a Joe Biden, who has a history of being a wheeler-dealer compromiser, right? are we going to get Scranton, Joe, or are we going to get activist, you know, the, 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 the Joe Biden who tended to run for president, who was a little more ideological. And I think, you know, Mitch McConnell strikes me, the, who will be the Senate majority leader, most likely, strikes me as a guy who could be open to compromise if a president offers the hand. I think he, I think he will do. He's, he's kind of a wheeler dealer kind of a guy. Yeah. And what we really want is moderate government. That's what we should be getting out of this because that's where the country's at, not ideological uh, government. But that, that depends, of course, really on Joe Biden more than anybody about whether he sees his role as being beholden to the more ideological parts of his party, which would be bad for things like religious liberty. Uh, it'd be bad for uh, life, human life, protection of human life. Um, you know, there, there might be other things where, where it, you know, there might be some benefits to that. Uh, but, 
uh, we'll just have to see how Biden plays it, assuming he's president, about how he reads that mandate. I, it's not like he's asking me for advice, but I think everybody involved, whether it's Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, or Joe Biden, should be much more modest in their claims and, and be a little bit more cautious in, in how, how strong of an ideological agenda that they try to push. You know, that's, it, it, that, that recently leaked caucus phone call, too, from the Democratic House caucus, one of the things that jumped out at me as I was reading reports on that, that conversation was a moderate Democrat from, I think, Virginia. It, it said, look, dear colleagues, stop saying defund the police. You have to stop advocating for outright socialism. Yep. Like, these are, these are not going to win us any friends, and in yep. fact, they've cost us a number of seats. You know, I, I, I think we can say, yes, these are really extreme positions and there's even a lot of Catholic teaching on socialism we could go through. But one of the, the things that I think has concerned a lot of Catholics, and maybe this is why we saw that, that huge Catholic vote for, for President Trump, was Joe Biden, who you point out has had a long career in government. He's been a, a moderate wheeler and dealer. But during this campaign, he really got pushed and he was saying things like he wanted to codify Roe versus Wade in, in federal statute, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, well, um, yeah. it's well, this isn't necessarily, now there are still plenty of these Wheeler and Dealer, maybe these Kennedy Catholic, if you will, uh, Kennedy Democrats that are, that are far more moderate, the ones who voted for Reagan, uh, hmm. you know, in, in his national landslide. But at the same time, there's a, um, there's almost like a branding issue where it's like, we're going for some really extreme stuff here. Like what you want to force nuns to pass out contraception. What, how can that, not only is that despicable as, as a matter of principle, but how can that be good for your brand? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, as we discussed it, you know, last time I was on the show, uh, people realized oh, Joe Biden is Catholic. Um, and so the, the, the fact that he's Catholic, but he's losing the Catholic vote about two to one might, might be an in- indication of something. But this is where, if I can be a little bit political science nerdy uh, with you for, for a second, you know, when, whenever, we get, whenever we get a new president, uh, you know, we get a shift like we were anticipating we're going to see now. What, what happens is everybody says, oh, who's Joe Biden going to pick for secretary of state? Who's, gonna, who's he going to pick for uh, secretary of defense? And they look at the cabinet. This is, what, this is I think, uh, I know, what, what we should be anxious about is, is if you study presidential management uh, organization, the cabinet is not really that important because on a day-to-day basis, the cabinet does not make policy. The cabinet is there for political reasons to give a public face of an administration, but day-to-day cabinet people are not making policy. Uh, It's far more important who Joe Biden picks as a secretary of state, or not secretary of state, his uh, chief of staff, I mean to say. Who's his chief of staff? Who is White House legal counselor? Or even when it comes to something like the Department of Education, the person who is the head of the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education is way more important on a day-to-day basis than who the Secretary of Education is because actual policy is made by White House staff and by lower-level people in the administration. And those people tend to be much more ideological, and those are the people we don't pay attention to. And I think think part of the fear is, you know, part of it you say that that Biden, you know, he he took some more – 
uh, extremist positions during the election. You, know, you, you talked about Roe v. Wade. He's come out against the Hyde Amendment, uh, which he had supported his whole senatorial career, yeah. uh, that there should be no public funding uh, of abortion. I've seen estimates that that, would, you know, that could uh, incentivize, if you will, uh, another 60,000 abortions a year. Um, and, and he's come out for things like the Equity Act of this stuff about you know transgenderism, which would be has no protections whatsoever for religious liberty for any kind of dissent uh, from from that stuff. And it's a matter of was he just saying that, which is possible. Um, and but then as we as we look at the personnel he puts into a Biden administration, you know, I think people really need to be paying attention. Who are these lower level people in say the Department of Justice and the Department of Education, and with like you know, like White yeah. House legal counsel? These are right. the these are the people who are making policy, but we tend not to pay attention to them, and we should. Yeah, that's a great point. That kind of reminds me of late in President Obama's tenure. One of the things that that really uh, boosted and in, in many respects galvanized a push for gender ideology in, in public schools was what they call this Dear Colleague letter mm-hmm. that was instigated. I think there were three federal departments, justice, education, and um, the third I'm forgetting now. But it was an OCR um, mm-hmm. originated, Office of Civil Rights in, in these three. So it, it wasn't necessarily like the, the, the cabinet um, secretary's great initiative. It was it was some lower level. You know that's where the the nuts and bolts of governance happens, is in the people who are writing these letters and, yep. and figuring out who to send them to. Um, so yeah, very very great point about about what to watch for. We've seen some you know some people starting to reflect on oh you know is is Mitch McConnell gonna really force President Biden if that's who we indeed get to moderate some of his cabinet picks. But, you know, some of these other, some of these others, they don't get um, scrutiny. Yep. Um, even if they do require uh, consent to the Senate to the same degree. Yeah. So great, great point. Yep. Um, okay. Anything else on, on national stuff before we return to some? No, let's, let's, let's get local. Yeah, let's do let's it. Uh, and this is, um, as Catholics, we love this principle of subsidiarity. There's, that's where all the you know, really interesting stuff can happen. And uh, sometimes without us really even paying attention because the, you know, the national media just turns our focus so much to what's happening in Washington. But we had a couple of um, ballot measures uh, that all got approved uh, this, this, last, uh, this last week. What, mm-hmm. what should we think about these? What's, what's going to shake out with a couple of marijuana proposals and then this um, sports betting? Yep. So we've got three different, uh, three different measures, as you pointed out. So we've got, we pass an initiated measure that allows for medical marijuana. That passed by a large majority. We had a constitutional amendment uh, uh, on recreational marijuana, which passed more narrowly. Um, but it's, it's in the constitution, whether it's by 1% or hundred percent, it's, it's all, it's still in the constitution. And then, as you say, the, uh, we are creating and expanding sports betting in the state of South Dakota. Um, you know, I guess what's disappointing about it, uh, is I, I, I look at it this way, Chris, in addition to, um, you know, just the, the inherent problems with, uh, uh, government um, endorsing uh, intoxication and gambling, which are both 
vices, at least gambling can easily become a vice, um, is, you know, look at our state government here in South Dakota, Chris. So we, the state government gets significant revenues from gambling, right? Both from like uh, uh, video, uh, video lottery, you know, video, video gambling, the, the lottery, you know, Powerball and all that stuff, the gambling in Deadwood. So we've got that. Um, we've got extraordinarily lax usury laws in our state yeah. uh, to try to incentivize uh, credit card companies to come to our state and charge obnoxious levels of interest uh, to their customers. We're one of a small handful of states that taxes food and clothing with our sales tax, which is a heavily regressive tax on the poor, which is why most states exempt food and clothing, because uh, these are necessities of life. And now the state's going to get significant revenue from marijuana. So the state now is invested in gambling, usury, drug use, and taxing the food and clothing of poor people. Yeah. Uh, that is not a revenue system which is based in justice. And that's what, uh, in addition, you know, because I can, I sort of get the pro-legalization marijuana argument. I'm not totally unsympathetic for, although ultimately I, I oppose it. Um, but nonetheless, uh, what, what really, I guess, frustrates me about this is that our state continually uh, gives itself a, a vested interest in promoting vice. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we don't have to, you know, we've read our Aquinas. We don't have to make every single vice illegal. Yes. But it doesn't mean we have to promote it. That's <laughs> um, right. And, yeah. and have the state have a vested interest because what happens if people stop gambling and stop using marijuana and the, the usurious credit card companies go away? Yeah. Uh, the state can't have that because then we have to raise taxes on all sorts of other things. And we don't, we don't want to do that. And so we see this when we've talked about uh, giving the exemption for food and clothing. Well, that would cost too much money. We can't do that because now we're addicted yeah. uh, to the money. And now we're going to be literally addicted to drug money for revenue to the state. Well, and the same argument is, is made time and again. Uh, every legislative session, at least my three past three years up in Pierre, uh, Representative John Mills um, goes and makes the case, say, hey, we need to wean ourselves off of this video lottery money. This video lottery is bad for families. It's destroying people's lives. Sure. Is it, a, is it inherently vicious? Is it, is, it, you know, is it intrinsically immoral for you to go put a buck in a machine? No. But it's, it's contingently vicious. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it easily tends towards these, these grave harms and the fact that we're making money off it as a state, um, it, it really highlights the problem. And, and the rebuttal he always gets is like, yeah, 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 we're with you. We, we, we don't disagree with you that it's like not the best thing in the world, but it's so much money. How are we going yeah. to get that much money? We don't want a state income tax. So what, is a, what does our state tax base look like? Yeah. And, and that's the, the, the problem is, you know, unlike most states that do not have an income tax, South Dakota does not have an obvious other source of money. Yeah. You know, places like Alaska and Texas and Wyoming, they don't have an income tax because they have mineral resources, oil and coal that they make a lot of money off of. Florida does not have an income tax because they have you know, goofy amounts of tourism uh, that, that they can tax and they don't need an income tax. But the state of South Dakota, obviously we have some tourism, but nowhere near the level 
uh, where Florida can get year-round tourism. Ours is completely seasonal. And we don't have that mineral wealth. Like if we were, you know, a couple hundred miles north in North Dakota, we would have, we'd have oil wealth and we don't have that. Uh, and so it leaves, if we don't have an income tax, we've got to go elsewhere. And what we've chosen is to go to vice um, uh, to help fund our government. And if we're not going to have an income tax, we just, it seems to me we've got to be far more creative uh, in how we generate revenue for the state. Well, in, in one of these proposals in particular, the recreational marijuana constitutional amendment is really unpopular, actually, amongst our elected leaders. Governor Nome has been on the record, vociferously opposed. Um, Speaker Haugard, uh, uh, Jim Boland, senator, mm -hmm. um, a longstanding senator with a lot of, a lot of influence. Do, do, do you think we should... We, can we expect that there's going to be some legal or political wrangling before the dust is all settled on these things? Well, I, I, at this point, I, I might have to defer to your expertise, Chris, because as I understand it, there are there are legal questions about Amendment A, uh, one of which the problems with do you really want to put this kind of policy in your constitution? But I, uh, I understand that there are issues with uh, um, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, we're supposed to have a single issue in, yeah. in, in everything that happens in our state. And, and there are some arguments that, that Amendment A had two issues, that it was marijuana and revenue. Maybe it was two things. And then there, are other, there are other legal arguments. I, I got to be honest. I don't understand that there might be ways of challenging this or how we implement it that we can uh, perhaps, I don't want to say repeal it because that's probably the wrong terminology, but, but maybe not implement uh, uh, what Amendment A suggests. So it, it might not be per se legalization, but I, I have to defer to legal experts on that because I understand there might be lawsuits coming and it's well, a little bit outside my expertise. Yeah, and maybe if we see one of those uh, pop up, we'll, we'll try and uh, grab one of the experts to, to mm -hmm. talk about it on the show. Um, but maybe the point being for now is that the dust hasn't quite settled. Even if we do get stuck with it though, I think many people are expecting like, well, is this just going to be something we're going to get sick of after a while because of the, we see the harms yeah. play out, but then to your point of, are we addicted to the money? So, yep. Um, yep. Well, 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 great. That's uh, yeah. It was really for me kind of shocking actually to see the, the huge, huge support for even constitutional amendment a, which, you know, this recreational marijuana thing passed while at the same time, our, our state races, our legislative races in the state kind of overwhelmingly were conservative uh, results. Yeah. And, you know, how do you reconcile these two positions? I, I maybe describe it as sort of a prairie libertinism yep. where we're sort of pursuing this freedom that's, without. That's what I would say. And remember what, what you need, you only need 50, 51, well, 50 plus 1% um, to pass your ballot initiative. So if you have a, a large majority of Democrats voting yes, yeah. then there is, with, especially within South Dakota Republicanism, there is this libertarian streak. Um, and if you just get even, you know, some independents and Republicans to vote yes, a significant, not even a majority, but a significant minority, you can cobble together 50%. And what, we, what I think what it, when it does settles, it's going to be a about 53%, 54% voting yes on A. And I think it's, it's this coalition of Democrats plus more libertarian-minded South Dakotans, some of whom are Republicans. Well, Dr. Schaff, as always, great to visit with you. And thanks again for coming on the program. You bet. 
And thank you, dear listeners. Anytime. For, One of the highlights of my life. Uh, it's so good to have you. Thank you, dear listeners, yeah. for tuning in. As always, love to hear, hear from you. Until next time, live well. Thank you.